0: been doing in 2nd Corinthians. I looked back over, I've been grateful for all that God's let us see in 2nd Corinthians through the summer and now into the fall. I was looking back over just to give you a quick review of the snapshots. In chapter one, we learned about how to contribute to the joy of others. In chapter five, we studied how believers view death. It's very different than the world does In chapter 6, how to become no-obstacle Christians, so we're not leaving obstacles in our wake that cause trouble for other Christians. Also in chapter 6, we learned about some of God's promises that promote purity in our lives. In chapter 8, this was two weeks ago, we looked at integrity and money matters. What does God have to say about how the church and how we handle money and doing that with integrity? In chapter 10, we looked at Paul and how he viewed himself as a soldier for Christ. In chapter 11, his heartfelt burden for the churches and how that's one of the things that kept him up at night was his concern for the church. And in chapter 12, we saw some of God's purposes for our hardships. When when things go difficult in life and we have a thorn in the flesh and we beg God to remove it and he doesn't, why does God let those hardships into our life? So, so far, we've seen joy and death and obstacles and purity and money and churches and hardships. Tonight, if you would turn with me to 2 Corinthians 5, just for a moment, I want us to see another topic, and I'll be honest, my goal is to just um, stop at about 10 or 15 after, so we have time tonight, and wherever we are when that gets here, I'm just going to try to cut it off and probably finish this next Sunday night, because in chapter 5, as you turn there, the total context of it is Paul is defending his style of ministry which is a very difficult and tricky thing for Paul to do, because if you defend the way you do ministry very strongly, it looks like you're promoting yourself and you're just defending you. But people had slipped into the church in Corinth and undermined his ministry, lied about him, uh, tried to tear him down so they would look better, and Paul has to write back to them to try to defend his philosophy of ministry. And we're in the middle of that. In the middle part of this book, The heart of the book is him doing that, him writing back to these people to say, what they said about me is not true. This is why I do this in ministry. This is my heart in ministry. And so that's where we're at. He's defending his ministry to the people who are trying to discredit his ministry. And he's walking a very fine line in doing that. I want to highlight just a couple of verses as Paul's defending this style of ministry. But while he's doing that, there's a couple of verses in chapter 5 that are fascinating to me because they they tell us some additional benefits we get when we come to faith in Christ. What I might call secondary benefits of coming to faith in Christ. Now I want to be careful here because God would not say they're secondary. None of the benefits we receive when we come to faith in Christ are secondary. They're all incredible and they're all wonderful. But if we were honest, we might call them secondary. Because, and I don't want anybody to answer, but if I were to ask you, When you got saved, be that as a kid or a teenager or as an adult, when you came to faith in Christ, don't answer because if we're honest, all of us would have the same answer. The primary reason you came to faith in Christ, what was it? If you had to write it out, why did you come to faith in Christ? That primary reason that all of us have, that's the exact same reason if we're honest, is none of the reasons listed in this middle part of chapter 5. In our minds, they're secondary benefits. They're wonderful benefits. I love the honesty in the Bible because in 1 Peter 1, I'll just read it to you, Peter sums up why we come to faith in Christ, the primary reason, if we're honest. He writes in 1 Peter 1, 9, you are obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Guys, I came to faith in Christ because I wanted saved. All the other benefits that come, and they're wonderful, were not the primary reason. I, I didn't come to faith in Christ so that I could have a family feel when I come to church, although that is a benefit. I now have brothers in Christ and sisters in Christ I would have never had. We were explaining that to the Taiwanese students this morning in Sunday school about what a church is, and then we said it is a family, but that's not the real reason I came to Christ so that I could call you my brother and my sister. I didn't come to Christ to help me have a better marriage although that is a secondary benefit as I try to follow the principles laid out in the Bible and if Wendy is it does make for a better marriage but that's not why I came to Christ I didn't want to go to hell I wanted my soul saved so I realized I was a sinner and I was guilty and I wanted forgiveness that's the primary reason we come to faith in Christ and if we're humble enough to admit it it wasn't anything loftier than that we wanted, First Peter nine the salvation of our souls. After that primary reason for coming to Christ is nailed down, we begin to realize there's all these other benefits of coming to Christ. And tonight, I want us to look at a couple of those consequences that come that in our minds are secondary, in God's mind they're not. <clears throat> now, would you read with me Second Corinthians 5, Beginning in verse fourteen. I'll just remind you this is in the context of him defending his ministry and his style of ministry, but just these verses, if we kind of lift them out, we see these benefits he mentions. Second <clears throat> Peter five fourteen. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this that one has died for all, therefore all have died. the new has come now he mentioned several benefits there Uh, we'll see if we can for sure wrap up the first one we might get to the second one tonight I'm gonna say at least four things that become brand new when you become a Christian primary reason we wanted the salvation of our souls secondary benefits that we get is several things become new that would never have become new in our old lives But first because I'd feel like a coward if I didn't address it, there is a major theological statement in what I just read. A major theological statement. As he describes these additional benefits you get, he says something in verse 14 that can't just be skipped over. In verse 14, he says, after he mentions that the love of Christ compels him or controls him, he says, we're convinced of this. This amazing truth has settled into Paul's heart. That one has died for all, therefore all have died. That's the exact opposite of what happened in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you had to go over and over every year and offer a sacrifice for your sins. So if you lived a long enough life, you could have many die for one. In the New Testament, one dies for all. This is a complete flip from the Old Testament. Every year you would offer another sacrifice, but because you sinned again, then another lamb had to die for you and your family. And over the years, that number grew and grew and grew, never ultimately taking away your sin, but just putting off punishment as it temporarily, offer, you temporarily offered a sacrifice as God prescribed in the Old Testament. But many died for one, and you get to the New Testament, and one dies for many or all what is important here is trying to decide who is the all and it's it's not an unimportant question one died for all therefore all died and there was a part of me that thought let's just get to the great stuff these additional benefits and miss this um, theological question but that's not fair to the passage The question is, who is the all in this passage? Christ died for all, therefore all died. There are some who would take it as absolutely universal. Christ died for all. Anybody, anywhere who has ever sinned, Christ died for all. Every man, woman, boy or girl, it is without limit. Christ died for all. Nobody here actually believes there's no limit put on this tonight, because if you believe there's no limit that Christ died for all, then you would say Christ died for angels because there were some angels who sinned. So all of us limit it somehow, because none of us believe Christ's death on the cross died for sinners who rebelled and became demons. Although they sinned, but Christ chose not to die for them. They have no chance of forgiveness. There's no offer to them of repentance and forgiveness. But he does offer it to mankind. So all of us limit it to some degree because angels sinned and we don't believe the, the offer applies to them. Everybody limits it some. The question is how does Paul limit it here? Does Paul limit it at all in the context of what he's saying? And I would argue biblically that he does based on the rest of the verse. Christ died for all, therefore, all died. Whoever the all is in the first half of the verse has to be the same all in the second half of the verse. It's very inconsistent to take a verse in the Bible and say the, a word in the, in the same verse means one thing and the, literally the exact same word a couple words later means something vastly different. So whoever the all Christ died for, it is the same people that when Christ died, they also died. So Paul limits it. The all has to be understood to be the same group. I thought about illustrating it this way. You know, this summer, Skyler took a team to Denver, a mission team. If I said, Skyler took the team to Denver, therefore the team got elevation sickness. You would understand that team in the first half means the same team in the second half. Schuyler took the team to Denver, therefore the team got elevation sickness up in the mountains. If you came to me and said, uh, when you said that, I thought you meant Schuyler took the team to Denver, our mission team, but when you said the team got elevation sickness, I thought you meant the Oklahoma City Thunder. I'd be like, you're, you're crazy. In the same sentence, team means the same team. You can't switch in the middle of a sentence unless something in the sentence tells you that. Schuyler took the team to Denver and Oklahoma City Thunder got sick. Whoever all is stays the same through the verse. The all for whom Christ died are the all who died with him. Romans 3.23, one you may have memorized as a kid, says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And he follows it up in Romans 6.23 by saying, the wages of sin is death. All of us have to die for our sins. For those who put their faith in Christ, this is is almost too grand to, to comprehend, but in God's way of reckoning things, those who put their faith in Christ, you were in Christ when he died. Therefore, you died. Your death penalty, your death debt, if you're a Christian, was paid when Christ died theologically. In God's mind, you died when Christ died. You no longer have to pay your debt. People who don't let Christ pay that debt for them will have what the Bible calls eternal death, all all eternity in hell to pay their death debt. And Christ so graciously died on the cross so that if you're in Christ, you died when he died. He credits your death with him and then he credits his righteousness to you. That's the way God sees it. It's similar to the argument in the Bible that when Adam sinned, everybody that was in Adam sinned. When Adam sinned, we all fell into sin because he's the the head of the human race and all of us were in Adam. And Paul's argument in Romans is when, when Adam sinned, all of us were in Adam, so everybody in Adam fell into sin. When Christ died, everybody that's in Christ died. So when Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5, Christ died for all, therefore all died, the all is the same people. Those for whom Christ died are those who died in Christ. If you you take a different view of that and you say in the first part of the verse, Christ died for all, and that means every man and woman, boy or girl, who ever lived, and you're consistent then every man and woman, boy or girl, who ever lived, died in Christ when he died on the cross. There are people who believe that, and they are universalist. They believe no one's going to end up in hell. Everyone's going to end up in heaven because Christ died for all, and that same all are all the people who died in Christ when he died on the cross. You're either left saying the all means the same in both places, or you have to bend this verse beyond its breaking point and say all in the first part It's a whole different group in the second part, even though it's the same word. This great theological truth, Paul hammers out also in Romans 6. Let me just read what he says there. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Paul writes to the Romans and says, when Christ died, you died, if you were in Christ. And he writes to the church in Corinth, and he says, listen, Christ died for all, and by all I mean all of you who will put your faith in Christ, and you died when he died on the cross. For the people who believe that Christ died for the, every single individual in the whole world if you want to argue that from the Bible this would be a terrible verse to do it from because you end up saying all of us then were in Christ when he died on the cross and I no longer have my death penalty to pay because I died in Christ positionally the way God sees it and I don't have to die anymore I don't have to die spiritually anymore this amazing truth so um, captivated Paul's life that he's going to list out these benefits that come once he grasps that truth. Now, I don't think any of us here tonight are universalists. So we have to deal with verses like this. Now, I would say Paul is saying the all for whom Christ died is the all who died in Christ. But there are other passages that support that. Let me just mention those, and then we'll get to the first great benefit. In John chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus said this, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. If you had been there with Jesus that day and say, by that, Jesus, do you mean you laid down your life for the whole world? He would say, I said I lay down my life for the sheep. In Matthew chapter 26, we read this just this morning in our Sunday school class, and initiating the Lord's Supper, Jesus said, this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. If you had asked Jesus, are you meaning your blood's poured out for all? He would say, no, what I said was my blood is poured out for many, not all. Ephesians chapter 5, Paul wrote, Husbands, love your wives the way Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. If you could have asked Paul that day, when you wrote that, did you mean Christ gave himself up for the world? And Paul would have said, no, what what I said was, I gave myself. Paul, Paul would have said Jesus gave himself up for the church. It actually is a pretty consistent theme in the Bible that Christ died for the sheep. He gave himself up for the church. And those who died in Christ are the ones for whom Christ died. But back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is saying, if you're in Christ, Christ died for you, you're in the all, and all of you died in Christ. Listen, that's just a gracious God that would let a substitute die in my place. And I think Paul's going to argue in 2 Corinthians 5, he never got over that. He never got over the love of Christ that would let him die as a substitute for Saul of Tarsus. Even when Saul of Tarsus was a blasphemer and a persecutor of the church, this truth settled into Paul's heart. Christ died for me as Saul of Tarsus before the Damascus Road, before I ever saw the light, before I got it. I will admit 2 Corinthians 5, that verse is a a difficult verse. We have to sort out what it means. And you're either left saying, all means everybody, therefore everybody died in Christ. I'm going to make all mean two very different things in the same verse. Or all is limited by Paul in the second part of the verse, and he's saying Christ died for all. And by that, I mean all who died in Christ. So what are the additional benefits? There are several things that come out of this, um, these few verses that are brand new to us when we become Christians. Let me make sure I get at least through the first one tonight. If you look at the very first first verse we read, Paul says, For the love of Christ controls, some verses say compel, some translations say constrain. The love of Christ constrains me. The first thing that becomes new, and I'm going to have to try to make this sound like it's a positive thing because normally we don't think of it this way, we get a new pressure in our life. A new pressure and an added pressure in our lives when we come to faith in Christ. We might not typically think of pressure as being a benefit, but this one is. In verse 14, Paul says, I've experienced the love of Christ, and this love that I have experienced constrains me. Paul says, Christ loved me so much, and in the very next verse he explains how he demonstrated his love. He died for me he died for Saul of Tarsus that love compels me it it controls me Paul says because he loved me I never got over that now the word that Paul uses there when he says the love of Christ constrains me this was actually the theme verse several years ago at Falls Creek and it was interesting to hear how people tried to explain this verse the love of Christ constrains me. It's a word that literally means confines or restricts. Um, Let me just read you a couple other places where this exact word is used in the New Testament. You listen to how it got translated. You don't have to turn there. These will be uh, stories you're very familiar with if you're familiar with the life of Christ. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus is um, surrounded by a huge crowd, and it says, As the people pressed around him, there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all of her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind Jesus, and she touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately the discharge of blood stopped. And Jesus said, Who touched me? And everybody denied it. And Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. Exact same word. The crowd is pressing in on you it's confining you we're surrounded by a mob Jesus there's hundreds of people around and you want to know who touched you and Peter says we can't tell you because we're so squeezed in here we can't hardly breathe they're just pressing in on us Jesus we can't tell you who touched you because the crowd is constraining us exact same word a couple chapters later they, um, Luke uses the word again in Luke chapter 19 Jesus is talking, he's describing how bad it's going to be for Jerusalem in the end. In Luke chapter 19, verse 43, he says, When Jesus drew near to Jerusalem, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. The word that's translated "him you in, totally surrounds you, is the word Paul uses to say, the love of Christ traps me. The love of Christ constrains me. One other place I'll give you where it's used in the New Testament is in Philippians chapter 1. Gives us a good picture of how how Paul used this word because he's the one that used it in 2 Corinthians. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 23... Paul writes, uh, he says, um, he's trying to decide with the Philippians whether he's going to go on to heaven or stay alive a little bit longer in ministry. And he says, if I'm to go on living in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet if I die, I go to be with Christ. Which shall I choose? I can't tell. I'm hard pressed between the two options. My desire is to depart and be with Christ because that's better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you. I'm hard-pressed on this decision. Exact same word. I'm constrained. I'm trapped. I don't know what to do. I want to go to heaven, but I want to stay with you guys. Trying to make this decision is like suffocating me. It's crushing me. I'm hard-pressed. So you look at how this word is used in the Bible. What the crowd did to Jesus in Luke 8 when they're crushing in on him, what the enemies are going to do to Jerusalem one day when they build barricades around it, And the hard decision Paul had to make in Philippians 1, hard-pressed, confined, restricted. Paul uses that word to say the love of Christ does that to me. Christ's amazing love for me traps me and confines me and controls me. It's a word for incredible pressure in life. Experiencing Christ's amazing, undeserved, gracious love put a heavenly pressure on Paul. I'm I'm constrained. It's changed my life. I, I can't be totally carefree anymore, like nothing matters in life. Things actually matter. The love of Christ demonstrated in his death puts a wholesome, gracious, godly pressure on me. The love of Christ constrains me. It's a new pressure. If you're a believer, you did not have this pressure before you became a Christian. Paul didn't have it before Damascus. He had lots of other pressures in his life. He didn't have the love of Christ creating pressure in his life. You know, the world puts all kinds of pressure on people. Sometimes families put pressure on people. Jobs, school, finances, relationships, even our own sin puts pressure on us sometimes. This is different than all that. This is pressure prompted by love. Fully understanding the love of Christ. Paul says, listen, what happened to me on that road as I was going to Damascus to persecute Christians, when I finally got it, that Christ died for me, I cannot get over that. And that creates a pressure on my life that's a good thing. This is motivational pressure. It's a love that motivates us, church. It's a love that prompts us It's a love that moves us forward. You know, there are sometimes, just to be honest and get it right where we live, there are sometimes we say no to a sin in our life because in a good way, we've been squeezed by the love of Christ and we say no to sin. It's not a fear of getting caught because we think we can do it without getting caught and we get right up to the line of sinning And Christ's amazing love for us bursts back into our heart and all that he's done for us. And we're motivated, we're prompted, we're constrained. It helps build fences in our life. We don't do the sin and there's no other reason for it except the love of Christ that has changed our life. I don't know if you've experienced that. There are times in my life that's what keeps me from saying something I really want to say, but I know I shouldn't say it and I realize Christ wouldn't say it, and the love of Christ changes me, and I just lock it up. Not always. Sometimes it busts on through. But the love of Christ constrains us, and we say no to certain sin. There are some times in our life when we're involved in a certain ministry, we decide, you know what, I could do this, and if I get involved in this ministry, be it teaching Sunday school or being part of the praise team or going on a mission trip or whatever it is, if I get involved in this ministry, it's going to take a lot out of me. And maybe you don't do it for the love of the class, you do it because of the love of Christ. The love of Christ constrains you to do it. I think Paul would have said, if we ask him, Paul, why do you take all the beatings that are recorded in the book of Acts? Why do you travel all the miles? Why do you write all the books? Why do you preach all the sermons? Why do you share the gospel? Why do you fight the fight? Paul would have said the reality of Christ's love has changed me and it pressures me in a good way. It constrains me. Guys, we have a new pressure. It's an added benefit. We typically don't think of pressure in that way. Paul would have said, I don't want to go back to living without this pressure constraining me. It provides boundaries and guardrails in my life. It motivates me to get involved and plug in when I could be passive and not get involved and plug in. The love of Christ constrains Paul. It's a brand new pressure in our life. Next week, from this passage, if you want to look it over this week, Lord willing, we'll look at a new life, a new outlook, and a new nature. But tonight, it's this new pressure in our life, and it does prompt us to do things that we otherwise wouldn't do. But the love of Christ, if we never get over it, if we get to the place we can get over it, and it's something that's old news in our life, then it may not prompt us like it should. Saul of Tarsus never got over it. So I pray we feel that pressure this week in a good way. And that pressure would outweigh all the other pressures in our life. Let me pray, and I'll turn it over to Skylar for, for Larry's licensing. God, I want to thank you that when, you, when your son died on the cross, You, by your grace and because of our faith, those of us that are in Christ, we died in Christ. We died in in Adam to the eternal life we could have had. We sinned in Adam, but we died in Christ so that we could now live in Christ. So we thank you tonight for that truth. And I pray that with the Apostle Paul, we would never get over that truth. That that love that you showed us on the cross would constrain us and compel us and control us and stop us and start us and move us and change direction and motivate us and prompt us in ways that lost people never experience. May we feel the loving, holy, wholesome pressure of the love of Christ in our life. And we could say with Paul, that amazing love constrains me. I pray we'd know that pressure and love that pressure and be sensitive to that pressure. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.